Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and a great big thank you to Alex Johnson, who uh, stepped in in the nick of time when uh, Slick Eddie found himself uh, manning the control room single-handedly because Orion couldn't make it in tonight, and uh, we were scrambling for some additional help, and uh, we uh, went back to the master. The, the girl who started it all in that uh, in that studio. So welcome, Alex, and thank you for helping us out tonight. We've got a great show lined up for you, and um, I'm very excited about this because nothing is more important to most people than money. And I know that sounds, in today's day and age, you know, greedy, whatever it happens to you, but let's face it, you can't feed yourself, can't house yourself, can't close, clothe yourself, you can't do anything <laughs> Unless you got a little bit of money. And uh, many people try to save for the future and they try to invest in homes and cars and things that they want to retain value. Um, It doesn't always work out, but it especially doesn't work out when uh, the economy crumbles. We saw a bit of that in 2008. Many of us um, experienced what kind of pain that can cause. Well, there are other people that are saying that that's going to be happening again because many of the things that were wrong in 2008 are still wrong, have not been fixed, and you need to know how to protect yourself about that uh, if that happens. And our ga- our guest tonight, James Rickards, is, uh, is uh, an expert on the topic. He's an author and a financial forecaster, and he's going to talk about how you can prosper in the face of an impending financial crisis. This is information we all need to have, and uh, we will be talking about it tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, Looking ahead, just so you know what we've got coming up tomorrow night, it'll be UFOs tomorrow night, which I think is really appropriate because if anybody is a fan of Turner Classic Movies, which I am, it's number one on my list of favorite channels because I love the old movies. Turner Classic Movies for the month of July has been doing, and I'm not even sure what they call it, honestly. I probably should have looked it up ahead of time, but they've, you know how they have themes they feature any given month. Well, in the month of July, they've been featuring science fiction films. And kind of doing a uh, chronology of those films, you know, starting with silent films and moving through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and now they're on to the 60s. And I think they do it on Tuesday nights. And uh, tonight they actually were showing The Time Machine, you know, the H.G. Wells adaptation from 1960. They also had Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey on tonight. Last week it was uh, the 50s and they were showing things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. They're great films, but uh, it's going to be appropriate for our conversation tomorrow night with Tom Carey and Don Schmidt because we'll be talking about a book they've written called UFOs, Secrets Inside, Wright Patterson, and they'll present eyewitness accounts from what they consider to be the real Area 51, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. That, uh, That facility has come up many times on this program as being a place that has many secrets, and many things that uh, a lot of people would like to get their hands on. So we'll talk to Tom Carey and Don Schmidt about that tomorrow night. So that'll be a great program as well. Uh, make sure you visit our uh, social media sites, specifically Facebook. Go to Beyond Reality Radio. Give that a like. Go to my Facebook page, JV Johnson, or you can find it by typing in at JVJ Paranormal. And give that a like. You'll be able to follow what we've got coming up on the program, plus other information and stories. Plus uh, other listener posts, a lot of great stuff. Our listeners are great at uh, sharing information they find, uh, whether it's in national news or sometimes in their local media, and they share some really cool stories with us on social media. Also, swing by YouTube. There is a very vibrant YouTube channel. If you cannot listen to the the, um, program on a radio station near you, you can stream it on YouTube, which is really, really convenient. 
Plus, uh, it gives you a bit of a video feed. You can see the antics in our studio here. Plus, uh, there's an archive of programs, a lot of uh, back episodes there. I think there's about 300 back episodes there to be listened to and or watched, plus some special content. It's uh, just J.V. Johnson on YouTube. Really, really easy to find. So I encourage you to do that. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll bring in our guest tonight. It'll be James Rickards, and we'll be talking about his book called Aftermath, Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Crisis. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and Save. Tonight joining us is James Rickards. James is an author and an economist. He's been an advisor to the Defense Department and U.S. intelligence community, as well as former general counsel for long-term capital management. Jim, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a real pleasure to have you here tonight. Thank you, JB. Great to be with you. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about your book, Aftermath, Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos. But before we talk about the coming chaos. Let's talk about where we've been, uh, where we've come. Um, we've had a really tumultuous decade, if you will. The last 10 years or so have been really odd, starting uh, you know, about 11 years ago in the 2008 crisis. What's the status of things right now? Well, it's a great question, and that's really where the title of the book comes from when you say aftermath. is like, okay, the aftermath of what? And it has two meanings. One is we are still in the aftermath of that 2008 financial crisis. Now, 2008 was ground zero. That's when we saw the failure of Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the two big mortgage agencies, then Lehman Brothers in September, AIG, and that whole sequence of events. And uh, people who lived through it, or uh, certainly people who remember, don't need any reminding. So we're still in the aftermath of that. Yeah, we're you know we're in a long recovery. The recovery started in June 2009. The economy's growing, unemployment's down. So there, there's good news there. This did not turn into uh, another Great Depression. But the problems really were not solved. We'll, we can talk about that specifically. But then, because of that, because the problems were not solved, they're still around, and I'll explain why, there'll be another crisis. It'll be worse than the one in 2008. And we're going to have to live through the aftermath of that. So I'm talking about the fact that we're still in a very dangerous period, even 10 years later. Uh, and it will get more acute, uh, more, um, more dangerous. And in fact, it will be a crisis worse than the last one. And then we'll have to get through that, that aftermath. So I'm really making reference to both. And, uh, yeah, 2008 is a good starting point. One, one thing I always point out to people, the crisis really started, of course, it built up for years because the, uh, the Federal Reserve, our central bank, kept interest rates uh, too low for too long. But it takes a while to build up. But it really uh, started in 2007. Yeah, 2008 was when you had the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. That was the worst stage of it. But the mortgage crisis really started in 2007. And uh, Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Fed at the time, was on the record uh, in the minutes of one of the Fed meetings in March 2007 when the mortgage uh, problems first became apparent. And he said, oh, oh don't, you know, don't worry, we'll get through this. Uh, he said, yeah, it'll be bad. I, I see the data, but... Uh, we'll get through this. So it, it shows that even the chairman of the Federal Reserve, as late as the spring of 2007, literally just months before you know the the uh, the bottom fell out, had no clue how bad it could be. So that's always a little uh, I don't want to point fingers, but it's a little disconcerting when the people with the best information and the best background don't even see it coming. Uh, so it started in the summer of 2007. Uh, a couple hedge funds collapsed. Uh, a couple of major banks could not redeem their commercial paper. Now, it, you know, they kind of put the fire out. The Fed cut the discount rate. Uh, the Treasury Secretary Paulson came up with some crazy idea. The, uh, they were going to take all the commercial paper off the books of the banks and put it in one big fund and work it out. And then it kind of died down. Um, and then by December, by Christmas 2007, it looked like everything was under control. The stock market started to go up again. The stock market didn't really peak until after that. 
But then came 2008 and, and the sequence of crisis I mentioned. And here's the point. These things, they seem like they happen overnight. It kind of hits you September 15, 2008, Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy. Right. Uh, people didn't expect that, but that was a year in the making. And I would go back um, 10 years before that, in 1997 and 1998. Uh, and in 1997, Thailand defaulted on its currency and its bonds. There was an Asian financial crisis, but it followed the same sequence. It kind of died down by December. I mean, there was blood in the streets, and, and sad to say, literal blood in Indonesia, in South Korea. People were getting killed. There were riots. Americans are kind of watching it on TV at a distance. And then, boom, in the summer of 1998, a year after it started, you had the Russian default, and then uh, a hedge fund, long-term capital management, uh, came you know, this close to defaulting on over $1 trillion worth of uh, derivatives, uh, swaps, and so forth. I had a front row seat on that when I negotiated that bailout. But, but here's what happened. In 1998, Wall Street got together, put up $4 billion, and bailed out the hedge fund long-term capital. Ten years later... The central banks had to bail out Wall Street. Here we are 10 years after that. Who's going to bail out the central banks? And this is my point, that the, the problem is never solved. It just gets moved upstairs. So Wall Street picked up the debt from the hedge fund. Ten years later, the central banks pick up the debt from Wall Street. That debt is still on the, banks, uh, on the books rather, of the central bank. And that, that's troubling because if you had another crisis tomorrow, if you had even a recession tomorrow, the ability of the Federal Reserve to respond to it, to do what they did the last time, they can't do it because they've never normalized it. If, um, so between 2008 and 2014, the Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet, the amount of liabilities it has, from about $800 billion to over $4 trillion. Wow. If, if somehow they had got back down to $800 billion, or even, I'll cut them a break, I'll say you know, $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion, I'd be the first one to say, hey, nice job. You know, you, you expanded your balance sheet when you needed to. You put out the fire. You got your balance sheet back to normal, and you're ready for the next one. That did not happen. The balance sheet is still close to $4 trillion. Interest rates are only 2.25%. Okay, they got them from zero to 2.25%, but you need interest rates to be about 4 or 5%, so you can cut them in another recession. It takes about uh, 4 percentage points of interest rate cuts to get out of a recession. So they haven't got interest rates back to where they need to be. They haven't got the balance sheet back to where it needs to be. They're not ready for the next crisis or even a recession. It doesn't have to be a financial panic. So what's going to happen? What if we had a recession tomorrow? I'm not saying there will be. I'm saying there could be. But more to the point, that the central banks are not ready. By the way, everything I said about the Federal Reserve, apply it to the uh, European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the People's Bank of China. They're all in worse shape than we are. So the world is, is more indebted than ever, not ready for a crisis. But in a 10-year expansion, we're probably getting close to a crisis. So, uh, so get ready for the next one, which will be worse, and then uh, we'll all have to live through that. How close were we in 2008 to what I would consider to be economic catastrophe? I think we were, we had, we had, we took our, we took our lumps for sure. It was no picnic, but it could have been worse. Well, it could have been worse, although there's an argument that maybe it should have been worse and things will be better today. Let, let me explain what I mean by that because that sounds, uh, sounds pretty harsh. But, um, first of all, we were close to a complete collapse. Uh, the, the Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, Henry Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, and President Bush at the time, they were just you know, like staring at each other, what do we do? And they, I've spoken to Ben Bernanke about this, and they just, he's a big admirer of, of FDR. And FDR, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt back in the Great Depression, when he became president in 1933, he was no economist. He didn't really know, know what to do. But he had this sort of ethic that, well, just do something, try something, see if it works. He would, maybe it wouldn't work, or the courts would shoot it down. He'd try something else, and he kept going, and eventually he, he muddled through it. Uh, and Bernanke took that lesson to heart. He told me this. He said, uh, I didn't know exactly what to do, but we were gonna, we were gonna try something. Well, of course, they cut interest rates to zero, but before they even got to that stage, here's, here's what they did. They guaranteed, they, the Fed, uh, and the other, uh, financial regulatory agencies, they guaranteed every bank deposit in America. Now, remember, there's $250,000 of FDIC insurance. So if you have 
up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. It's it's protected by the FDIC insurance fund, although the, the fund can go bankrupt too. Uh, but they didn't care. They said if you have a half million, a million, ten million, you're a small business, medium sized business, whatever, we're guaranteeing the whole thing. Then they guaranteed every money market fund in the United States. Some people have money market funds. These are not bank deposits. They're actually securities of a particular kind. You give the fund your money, and they invested in um, commercial paper, treasury bills, bank CDs, uh, short-term liquid instruments. There was a run on the money market funds, the same as a run on the bank. Well, those money market funds couldn't sell the securities fast enough or couldn't get par value. They couldn't get dollar for dollar, in other words. Um, and they were at risk of uh, not being able to pay the depositors their full money back and maybe having to shut down. So to stop that bleeding, the Fed said, okay, we guarantee every money market fund in the market just to calm people down. They didn't have to do that. And then to top it off, they did $10 trillion worth of currency swaps with the European Central Bank. Let me explain that briefly. So the banks in Europe... Deutsche Bank, Barclays, uh, Societe Generale, the big French banks, Unicredit, the big Italian bank, they were in as much trouble as the U.S. banks, maybe worse. Uh, and they had a lot of dollar liabilities. They had borrowed dollars short-term to make dollar loans. Well, what were they borrowing? They were borrowing in the commercial paper market. That was what the, the money market funds had. The, the money market funds had invested in the short-term dollar liabilities of the European banks. And the money market funds would not roll them over. They were selling them. So the European banks turned to the European Central Bank, that's their, like, kind of like their Fed, and said, we need dollars. Well, the European Central Bank doesn't print dollars. It prints euros. So they couldn't bail out their own banks because they had the wrong currency. So what happened was the European Central Bank printed up trillions of, of euros. The Federal Reserve printed up trillions of dollars, and they swapped them. The Fed gave the European Central Bank our dollars. The European Central Bank gave us their euros as kind of collateral. And then, at that point, the European Central Bank had the dollars to bail out their own banking system. So this was global. By the way, what I just described, that, that multi-trillion dollar currency swap, it was not known at the time. It was not public. It came out years later after Dodd-Frank. So, so my point being, none of this had ever happened before. The, the crisis was the worst since the Great Depression. But the Fed's actions, guaranteeing every bank deposit, guaranteeing every money market fund, um, bailing out Wall Street, trillions of dollars of swaps with the European Central Bank. None of it had ever been done before. It was all unprecedented. Uh, Jim, when we look back at the 2008 crisis in which, as the title of your book indicates, we are still in the aftermath of, um, I seem to remember uh, oil spiking to somewhere around $150 a barrel. Did that play a role in any any of what had happened? Because it seems to me it couldn't have been benign in the whole thing. Well, uh, it, it was a uh, it was a serious event, but I think the oil uh, spike was a little bit independent of that. A couple things went on. Uh, the Fed, you know, cut interest rates. Well, that tends to weaken the dollar. Uh, when people say, well, the price of oil, they're talking about the dollar price of oil. And you're right, it did go up well over $100 a barrel. But that was really a reflection of the weak dollar. The In August 2011, now we're talking three years after the worst part of the crisis, that was the lowest... Um, uh, dollar ever. That was the cheapest dollar ever. There's a, the, Fed, the Federal Reserve keeps an index. They can actually track it month by month. And, and the weakest dollar ever on record was August 2011. Well, that was also the highest dollar price for gold and an extremely high dollar price for oil. Uh, gold had an all-time high of $1,900 an ounce, and oil was way up over $100 a, a, a barrel, as you mentioned. But the dollar price of gold or the dollar price of oil or the dollar price of anything is just the inverse of the dollar itself. So a weak dollar means a higher dollar price for oil. A strong dollar, which we've had lately, means a, a lower price for oil. Now, oil's down around $50 a barrel, give or take. But uh, two years ago, sorry, three years ago, it was down around $25 a barrel. So that was just the inverse. So, so much of this... People say, well, the price of oil, the price of gold, or the price of houses, or whatever. But you're measuring it in dollars, and so what you really have to ask yourself, do I have a strong dollar or a weak dollar? And then to answer that, you have to go to the Fed and say, well, are they printing them? Are they burning them? Are they are interest rates high? So all this kind of comes back to the Federal Reserve uh, at some days. And I should um, share with the listeners that right now 
I'm, uh, I'm uh, speaking from the uh, Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Great place, great place. Yeah, great place, beautiful place. It may not mean a lot to some people, but to those familiar with the international monetary system, Bretton Woods is a uh, is a legend. This is where this is the hotel. This is the place where the original Bretton Woods uh, monetary agreement, international monetary agreement, was worked out in in 1944. And I'm here because it is the exact 75th anniversary of that International Monetary Conference. And we're, we're here with a group of uh, top economists and others. And what we're doing, we're, well, we're commemorating the 75th anniversary, but we're also having our own conference to think about the future of the international monetary system. And we're, we're not the delegates from uh, 40 countries, uh, although there are probably that many countries represented, but we're uh, putting our heads together and thinking about what the international monetary system will look like in the future. But uh, you know, Larry Summers is here as the former Secretary of the Treasury, and um, you know a lot of very well-known journalists and think tank people, and uh, and others from all over the world. So uh, it's uh, it's you know it's quite the event, and uh, kind of just lucky my book comes out the same day. You know, aftermath comes out the same day as the 75th anniversary of uh, Bretton Woods. I can't say I planned that, but it was a nice uh, <laughs> nice coincidence and, and nice to be here. But we're you know, we're going kind of a little down memory lane in terms of what happened then, but also thinking about things going on today. And um, that kind of brings me to the, the second uh, part of the word aftermath, which is uh, if there's going to be a new crisis, what does that look like and, and, uh, and what does that entail? But uh, um, it, uh, there's, there's something really new that has happened. That, you know, since 2008, so, this, uh, so we had another six months or so of recession, that went into 2009, and you know, stock market. Uh, Dow Jones was like 6,000 today. Right. It's 20 over 27,000. Uh, so we've come a long way since then. We've had a 10-year expansion, the longest in U.S. history. Uh, now at 121 months, so that is the longest one. But it's been a very weak expansion. Long is good, but uh, weak is uh, not so good. Uh, typical uh, expansions for the U.S. economy. We grow. About 3.2 percent a year, a little more than that, but that's that's about the average. This 10-year expansion has been growing at a rate of 2.2 percent. Um, and people say, well, you know, that's just a percentage point apart. What's the big deal? It's a very big deal when you take an economy the size of the U.S., you know, over 20 trillion dollars, and you shave a full percentage point off, and you compound that over 10 years. The lost wealth, uh, you know, is the, how much more would we have? How much richer would the country be? If we had been growing at the uh, at the old rate of three point two percent, the answer is about four trillion dollars. Now, can you imagine somebody walking into the Oval Office, handing the president a check for four tr- trillion dollars, and saying, "Here, Mr. President, it's free money. <laughs> Spend it on whatever you want." So, you know, entitlements or benefits or health care, infrastructure, defense, whatever you want. Well, that's how much money we've lost by growing at a slow rate instead of the customary rate that we are capable of doing. So that's part of why we're not. You know, people don't feel like, yeah, I got a job. Well, that's good. You know, unemployment's low. That's good. Uh, wages are going up a little bit. Not that much compared to past recoveries, but they're all going up a little bit. But people still still feel like, um, you know, it hasn't grown the way it should or we haven't dug ourselves out of it. And, and they're right to feel that way because the truth is we haven't, except that now, as they say, 10 years down the road, we're a lot closer to the next recession than the last one, and are, are we ready for that? And the answer basically is no. One of the words that you've used frequently already in our discussion, and it's one that scares me a lot, and that's the word debt. How important is it for us to control, monitor, and recognize the debt, not only we have as a nation, but as we have as individuals? Well, it's hugely important, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up because, um, you know, when you, you write these books, you go back and forth with your editor, and one of the things my editor said to me is like, you know, Jim, I love what you're doing. I love these chapters. This is really well written. But where's the, where's the thread? Where's the thing that goes all the way through it and makes it a book and not just, you know, a collection of eight essays, as it were? Uh, and there are a couple, of, a couple answers to that, but one of them is debt. And I have a full chapter on this. It's uh, chapter two, so, you know, kind of close to the front of the book. And I make the following point. A lot of people assume... Um, you know, commonsensically, if you will, that you know George Washington came in in 1789 as pr- as the first president. There was no debt, and then he borrowed some money, and then you know Thomas Jefferson borrowed more for the Lu- Louisiana Purchase, and 
Lincoln borrowed money for the Civil War and, and so on, and it kept going up and up and up. And here we are today, and it's $23 trillion, because that is the national debt today. It's, it's about $23 trillion. But it just kind of went up in a straight line for 230 years. That is not what happened. That is not how it went down. First of all, we had national debt before we had a nation. When George Washington was sworn in, we already had some national debt. It was left over uh, debt from the Revolutionary War. And the first question was, what do we do with it? Well, the Congress, of course, did, took the American way. They said, let's don't pay it. Let's just default. Uh, that was a different Congress, a different time. We're not going to pay it. And it was Alexander Hamilton who said, no, let's borrow some more money, pay off the old debt, and then grow the economy, and then we can borrow more in the future and pay off the new debt, and so on, and keep rolling it over. And that that worked. That was the creation of the uh, of the Treasury market, the U.S. government securities market, or Treasury market, and has been going strong for 230 years. And what Hamilton did was actually establish the credit of the United States. If you have credit, you can borrow more and pay off the the old debt. But what you have to do is keep it manageable and make sure you grow the economy enough. And the way I, I illustrate this, imagine somebody owes $25,000 on a credit card. Well, is that a big debt or not? Well, the answer is it depends on the income you have to support it. If you're making $20,000 a year, um, you're probably headed for bankruptcy. But if you're making $200,000 a year, then that 25000 is, is is manageable. You could probably pay it off in one check. And so you can't just look at the debt in isolation. You have to compare it to the size of the U.S. economy. That's number one. Number two, the debt did not go straight up. It, it was sort of a sine wave. It went up, and then it went down, and then it went up, and then it went down, and so forth. Throughout U.S. history, in 1836, when Andrew Jackson left office, he wiped out the national debt. We had no national debt in 1836. He also got rid of the... Uh, we had a central bank at the time called the central bank, or the second bank of the United States. Got rid of the central central bank. So, so Jackson, Andrew Jackson's legacy to the country was no debt, no central bank, and we didn't have a central bank again until 1913. So you had that, uh, you know, uh, uh, 40, uh, uh, sorry, 60 year period uh, in between when we had no central bank and started out with very low debt, and the country did extremely well. But so what was the dynamic behind this sine wave I described? Why did the debt go up and down and up and down? The answer is war. The debt goes up in a time of war. It's either existential or, you know, however you got into it, you have to fight it and win it, and so you borrow money. But then in times of peace, the debt goes down again. And that was done on purpose because they said, well, maybe there'll be another war, so we need to restore our borrowing power. We can't just keep borrowing. We have to pay it off. And then we can borrow again. So that was that was the dynamic, and it lasted all the way through. Uh, I would say until nineteen, until two two thousand, really. But um, go ahead to nineteen forty five, when uh, the end of World War Two, uh, you know, President Roosevelt died in office. But really, the end of his uh, term and the beginning of Harry Truman's uh, administration. The debt to GDP ratio. How much debt did we have relative to the size of the economy? Was one hundred and twenty percent. We had more debt than the output of the economy, but we had had to fight World War II. I mean, people understood you needed to borrow the money. But then what happened over the next 35 years was amazing. Uh, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, working together, the Fed, the Treasury, and the White House, got the debt-to-GDP ratio down from 130, sorry, 120% to 30%. At the end of Jimmy Carter's term, it was only 30%, which is very manageable. That's, that's a debt that the country can afford. But you had Democrats, you know, Harry Truman, uh, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Jimmy Carter, and you had Republicans, Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, working together to do that. And that's, that shows what a high priority it was. It wasn't politicized. It wasn't partisan. It was just people doing the right thing and knowing that they had to get the debt down. Now, Reagan comes in in 1981, and Reagan kind of has this reputation as a fiscal conservative. That's not true. He was the last of the big spenders. He took the debt-to-GDP ratio up from 30% to 50%, which is a 60% increase. But he won the Cold War. Again, it's, it's, the, it's the war that drives the debt. So 600-ship Navy, Star Wars, a lot of initiatives. 
And finally, the Soviet Union just threw in their cards. They just said, we, we can't keep up with the United States. And they dissolved the Soviet Union on that December 25th, 1991. So the point I make is we got something for the money. Yeah, the debt went up, but we got something for the money. We won the Cold War. George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, again, one Republican, one Democrat, worked together. They didn't reduce the debt a lot, but they kept a lid on it. They kept it around that 50% level that Reagan reached. It didn't get worse. So that takes the story up to 2000. But in the year, in 2001, when George W. Bush came in, we ran off the rails. Everything I just described uh, stopped, and the debt just went straight up. So George W. Bush, Bush 43, uh, when, when Clinton left, the debt was $5 trillion. Bush doubled it to $10 trillion. Obama doubled it again to $20 trillion. And Trump has come in and added $2 trillion in his first two years. So now we're at $22 trillion, But that pattern I described of up and down, up and down, it's broken. Now the debt does just go straight up. Republicans and Democrats, we used to have bipartisan uh, responsibility. Now we have bipartisan irresponsibility. Um, and we, we lost the opportunity to reduce the debt in a time of peace, which I was saying, you know, uh, Obama and, and Trump hasn't had any uh, new wars. Uh, but, but that's gone. And so now uh, we're, we're just at a point where it is out of control. There's no spending restraint at all. Uh, the, there's no dry powder. If, we, if you actually did have a war, so we don't. But if you did, the borrowing capacity would really put a strain on the U.S. economy. And, and worse than that, there's good evidence that debt itself becomes an impediment to growth once you get past 90%. And there's very good research. Uh, Ken Rogoff and uh, Carmen Reinhardt, two professors at Harvard, they've done a ton of work on this. They have a book, many uh, technical papers. I've read them all. And what they say is that uh, up to 90%, you get a little bang for the buck. You know, and this was Keynes' idea. You're in a recession, you're in a depression, uh, people won't spend, you're in a liquidity trap, so the government can borrow and spend and get the economy moving. Well, that's true to some extent if you're, as I say, in a recession, and, and you can borrow a dollar and spend a dollar and actually get a dollar fifty of growth because the person who gets the dollar you spent, they, they go out and spend it, and then that person spends it, and it's, the technical name is velocity, but the velocity of money increases. But at 90%, that doesn't happen anymore. You now borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, and you, you don't even get a dollar of growth. You get less than a dollar of growth. What that means is that you can't borrow your way out of it. You're in debt, and you can't use more debt to get out of it. You can't use more debt to grow the economy enough. It just gets worse, and that's where we are right now. Now, I have no doubt that this bumper song is played on every radio program that tonight's guest, James Rickards, appears on. And we didn't want to be the one show that didn't use it. Uh, Jim, we've got a particularly short segment here, just a minute, because uh, we went long in the last segment. But I want to ask you about debt. Uh, Again, $23 trillion currently is the national debt. And I don't want that to be confused with deficits. A lot of people confuse the two. Um, And it's one thing to carry $23 trillion when interest rates are zero. It's another thing to carry 23, 24, 25 trillion when interest rates move to a historical level, which is what, 3, 4%? Yeah, or even higher potentially if we get a little bit of inflation. But you're absolutely right. So you take, uh, I'll just use a round number, 20 trillion. The actual number is close to 23 trillion. But just take 20 trillion of debt and add two percentage points onto that because it has to be rolled over all the time. That's $400 billion in interest. Over and above the deficits we've got, you're right, the, the deficit's the annual amount that you come up short. The debt's the cumulative amount uh, through you know, all U.S. history. But you could be adding $400 billion to the annual deficit if you tack 2% uh, interest rate hikes on top of the debt we have. So it's, uh, you know, you better hope that rates stay near zero because, uh, we certainly couldn't afford the increase. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what the chaos part of your title means. But before we go to break here, where can people get this book? Well, it's available on Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com. But also, as of today, it's available in the bookstores. We've done a lot of uh, sort of a pre-ordering, but now you can go down to your local bookstore and pick up a copy. And uh, I'm very, very grateful people do. But again, tonight we're talking with James Rickards. He's an author and a financial forecaster. His website is jamesrickardsproject.com. 
You can go there and get a lot of information about his work, including all of his books. He's got several to his name. We're talking about Aftermath, Seven Seven Secrets of Wealth Preservation in the Coming Chaos. Other books that uh, Jim has written, The Road to Ruin, The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold, Currency Wars. And Jim, these books, uh, some of these books kind of all are are companions to one another, aren't they? Well, that's right. Uh, The four, four of the ones you mentioned, J.V., so Currency Wars, The Death of Money, the Road to Ruin and Aftermath are actually uh, the International Monetary Quartet. So it's kind of Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, Volume 4. I'm now done, and I, uh, I mean, I'll write other books, but this, uh, this quartet could uh, you know, come in a box set, as it were. Uh, any resemblance to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse <laughs> is strictly intentional. Uh, they, they go together, but what they do is they form a, uh, uh, a, a chronology, a chronologue, of the uh, of the decade following the, the financial crisis. Now they go back in history. I talk about. I mean, I go all the way back to Charlemagne. Uh, he was the inventor of QE. You know, in the in the eighth uh, century uh, A.D., he uh, switched from a gold standard to a silver standard, so we could increase the money supply. So there's a lot of history. Um, you know, certainly through Bretton Woods and uh, the currency wars that are in the 20th century. But I bring the story forward. Go through. Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, now Jay Powell, bring it completely up to date. There's a lot in the new book, Aftermath, about the, obviously the Trump administration, Trump budget, and so forth. So, so they do flow together, uh, but they also stand on their own. And Aftermath, being the latest volume, is in some ways cumulative. It picks up a lot of the uh, material in the in the early ones, but it just, uh, basically just follows this uh, this ten year story, this road we've been on. Um, and you, you know, you were asking earlier about. Um, the, what I call the coming chaos or a new financial crisis and what's going to trigger that or what that's going to be like. So, I mean, we, so we've talked so far about the weak recovery. Yes, we've had a recovery, but it's been very weak. We said that the Fed is not ready for the next crisis because they never got their balance sheet back to normal. They never got interest rates back to normal. So they uh, put out the fire a little bit in 2008, 2009, but they're not ready for the next one. And then we talked about the debt and the debt overhang as an impediment to growth, so we can't grow our way out of it. When you have that much debt, you only have three choices. You can default. Well, we're not going to default because we can print the money. You can grow your way out of it, but we're not getting the growth. We've seen that, and also the debt is an impediment to growth. The third way out, and the one I expect, and again, the American way, is inflation. Now, we don't have much inflation right now, and we haven't for the last 10 years. But um, it's the only way out mathematically and historically. So, uh, you know, get ready for it. It'll be, uh, I always say it's a sad day when a central bank wants inflation and they can't get it. But they will keep trying and uh, eventually we'll get there. But so then the question is, well, what else is out there? What else is on the horizon, <clears throat> pardon me, that's going to trigger um, this crisis that I'm writing about we're describing? The first big thing, and I think investors are, are pretty familiar with this, is so-called passive investing or indexing. Now, what does that mean? Well, about 40 years ago, Jack, uh, Jack Vogel invented the, the index fund, and it basically says you can't beat the market. You know, stock market goes up, it goes down, but, you know, unless you're a real insider, you, know, you can't beat the market. And if you try, you're probably going to buy high, sell low, and lose money. So what you should do is you should match the market. Put your money in a fund that just duplicates the market and go along for the ride. You'll, there'll be ups and downs, but if you hang on long enough, buy and hold, eventually it'll go up, you'll make money. The fees are less, and that's the way to go. Well, um, it's a little bit, I analogize this to um, a mosquito landing on the back of an elephant. So what happens when a mosquito lands on an elephant? Well, the mosquito gets a good meal, and the elephant doesn't notice. The elephant doesn't notice a single mosquito. But what happens if a million mosquitoes land on the elephant? Well, the answer is the elephant dies. In other words, uh, the, the mosquito is a parasite. It's a free rider, uh, and one or two or even a somewhat large number can get the free ride. But there comes a time when you kill the elephant. We're now at that point, <coughs> pardon me, in terms of uh, passive investing index funds, so-called exchange-traded funds or ETFs. They're just mini index funds. They have a smaller index of stocks, but they're, they're basically the same thing. All of these funds, and, and we're talking trillions of dollars, now way over 50% of all the investment in the stock market, are free-riding on whom? Who's, who's the elephant? And just to follow the metaphor, well, the elephant is the active investor. The investor comes in, you know, does his homework, does his research, 
looks at fundamentals and says, I'm going to buy this stock or sell that stock, etc. And you're a capital committer. When you're the active investor, you're committing capital, taking risk, you're engaged in what's called price discovery, uh, and the passive fund is free riding on you. You're the elephant and the, the passive fund is the mosquito. Well, we're getting closer to the point where we have all mosquitoes and no elephants. In other words, those active investors are disappearing. So what happens when there's a market correction? I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, you know 1929, although that could happen. But just if the market went down 10 or 15% and that gathered momentum, what would happen? Well, investors panic. They call their fund. They say, give me my money back. By the way, that's the best description of a, a panic, financial panic I've ever heard. Everybody wants their money back. You know, it just doesn't matter. Sell everything, stocks, bonds, whatever. Get me my money back. Well, when you do that, the, the, the fund manager, whoever's managing the passive fund, they have to sell the stocks to get you your money. Well, think about the dynamic now. The market's going down, and what are they doing? They're selling. What does that do? It makes the market go down more. What does that do? People panic more. They want their money. You sell more. So you get in this kind of death spiral of selling and market declines. Now, the active investor used to be the hero who would run in and say, okay, everyone's selling. I'll be a buyer. You know, I'll, I'll stand up to this and buy because I see some bargains. But the active investor is gone. The elephant's dead. And this is going to go straight down. It's going to go no bid. And now you are talking about 50, 60, 70% declines. Not overnight, but over weeks or months of the kind we did see in 1929. So this, this idea that you can free ride on the market with an index fund, it's true for the first guy. It has been true for decades. It does work, but there's a tipping point. There's a, uh, inflection point where it, it becomes the market. There are no active investors left, and you just go straight down in the panic. So that's, that's an accident waiting to happen. But it's not, this is not a warning about what's going to happen in 10 years. It, it's there today. It, it could happen tomorrow. I'm not predicting it will, although it could. Uh, and that's really the point. That's just one more, uh, little more uh, fuel on the fire. So stock markets up and down, um, that happens, obviously. That's not necessarily uh, chaos in the economy. What are we looking at in, in what I guess I would consider to be a worst-case scenario? Well, when this happens, everything I'm describing comes together, and there's another component to it, uh, financial warfare, uh, which we can talk more about. But um, what happens is, uh, you know, when you're in kind of my position, so you're an author, you're a public speaker, you have consulting clients, People love to put words in your mouth, and they say, you know, well, Jim Rickard says the world's coming to an end, sell everything, buy gold. I've never said any of those things. The world's not coming to an end. Don't, don't sell everything. <laughs> Diversify your portfolio. Yeah, I like gold. Have some gold in your portfolio, but 10% is plenty. Don't, you know, don't go overboard. So uh, there are ways to uh, survive this. But what's going to happen? Uh, it's not the end of the world. It's not Mad Max. It's not, you know, like Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, which is, you know, the world in the aftermath of a, of a complete catastrophe. But it is different. And if you want some models, certainly one would be Venezuela, where, you know, you, the supermarkets are still open, but the shelves are bare, and the police are still in uniform, but they don't do their jobs, and uh, the power grid goes on and off, and the transportation network breaks down. So you still have the, the appearance of, of infrastructure, but it's not working. And uh, if you want a really good example, and I, I read this, and I said, yeah, this, this person's got it. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a book called The Mandibles. It's a novel. It's not an economics uh, book. It, it's a novel by Lionel Shriver, who's an award-winning author. Uh, she kind of picked up on what I talked about in my first book, Currency Wars, uh, which, which is nonfiction. And uh, she quoted me in the intro to her book, which is very kind. Uh, but she paints a picture of the United States in the not distant future between 2029 and 2049. So, you know, starting eight years from now and going, uh, 20 years into the future. And, and this is what she describes. I don't want to say too much because, uh, you know, people enjoy her book too, uh, and, and not give it away. But, um, you know, the, uh, a lot of people are unemployed and they move in with their families. So all of a sudden, the, the sister who still has a job with, Two bedrooms. She's got 14 relatives who moved in. The university professor gets fired because who needs them? Um, and uh, there's a cop on the beat, but you got to pay him to guard your house. Uh, and you go to the grocery store, and you you might be looking for you know potatoes or vegetables, and you buy a you know box of steel bolts. And like, why do you buy steel bolts if you're looking for potatoes? Well, the answer is there are no potatoes, but the bolt the bolts might be something you could swap or barter 
at some point in the future. So buy what you can, barter it later for the stuff you need. So life goes on, but it's very different. Uh, it could be a little more agrarian. Maybe the place to be is not in a city but on a farm. Um, and uh, uh, maybe it looks a little bit more like, uh, you know, Grover's Corners in uh, New Hampshire in, in uh, 1910 uh, in Thornton Wilder's uh, uh, play, Our Town. So um, I think people need to be prepared for those kinds of scenarios. And I'm not talking, I'm not the, uh, I don't really buy into the whole prepper thing where you get your canned goods and your machine gun and, and you're in a cave and you're shooting anything that moves. That actually doesn't work. Uh, but what does work is, is community where uh, a small town works better than a, a big city. Knowing your neighbors is better than a machine gun and just people cooperating, working together. It might be something more like that. Uh, but to get there, and preserve wealth, what should you have? Well, stocks and bonds might not do the trick. You might want some gold, some silver. Uh, silver is a particularly good uh, thing because it, it's it's less expensive than gold, but you can use it in smaller denominations. Certainly owning land uh, is is a good asset. Um, you know, natural resources, water, energy, things like that. So, so I make the point that we're not helpless. Uh, you can see this coming. I describe it in the book. But you don't have, just have to sit there and be a victim. You can get ready now uh, and, and survive it in, in pretty good shape. So um, and we're going to go to break here, but just a quick question about this the scenario you just described. Does that uh, imply a currency collapse? Yes, uh, and it's interesting. Lionel Shriver picks, up, picks that up in, in her book, uh, but it's the aftermath of a financial crisis. So it, you could have other scenarios. You could have a you know, a natural disaster, uh, a super earthquake, uh, right. you know, et cetera. But uh, or plague, et cetera. But you know, you don't have to go into all the scenarios. This would be the aftermath of a financial crisis, and it does imply a loss of confidence in the dollar. Uh, and but you know, gold and silver, you know, tangible assets, fine art land, they will always retain their value. Uh, Jim, again, a short segment here because we went long. I want to ask you about gold and silver, and this may be a, a naive question, and B, we may not have enough time to answer it right here, but. Um, Gold and silver obviously go to for any type of financial turmoil, crisis, or uncertainty. What gives gold and silver its intrinsic value? Well, uh, intrinsic value is an uh, interesting way to put it. Uh, look, take any form of money, gold, silver, dollars, at times feathers, beads. Uh, today we have digital cryptocurrency, et cetera. And people say, oh, well, there's nothing behind the dollar, there's nothing behind the euro, nothing behind Bitcoin, et cetera. And I say, no, there is something behind all of them, and it's the same thing, and it's confidence. If I tender money to you and you're confident that it's money and that you can turn around and give it to somebody else for goods and services, it's money. Uh, again, it could be any one of the things I mentioned. The problem with confidence is it's fragile. It's easily lost, and it's impossible to regain. So when you think about the best form of money, you have to ask yourself, well, which one do people have confidence in? And the, the confidence will not be shaken. No matter what happens, this is always going to be money good. And the answer is gold and silver. Gold, in particular, um, stands up to that test. Uh, it's scarce. Uh, it, uh, the supply does grow. It's not fixed. It grows about 1.6% a year, not too far out of line with global growth. Uh, but it's what makes it different. It's not somebody else's liability. Take a dollar out of your pocket and read it. And read the dollar bill. It's a contract between you and the Federal Reserve. And it says at the top, Federal Reserve note. A note is a liability. In other words, you may, it's your asset because you have it, but it's a liability of the Federal Reserve. They're kind of promising you something. Uh, same thing with any other kind of note. Gold, if you have it, there's nobody on the other side. There's no bank that printed it. There's no company that issued it. It's not anyone else's liability. So that makes it a unique kind of asset, and that's why people do not lose confidence in it. We got about uh, half a minute here, um, but when it comes down to anything in a real crisis, you can't eat gold, you can't drink gold, you can't build a home out of gold to shelter yourself, you can't wear it as clothing. You might be able to make some nice jewelry out of it. So I'm, I'm just really, when push comes to shove, is it any better than currency? Sure, because uh, people don't lose confidence in it. Now, by the way, I wrote a whole book on this. Uh, we're, we're talking about aftermath tonight. Uh, but I have a book called The New Case for Gold, and I go through all these arguments because they've been around a long time. Uh, people say, well, Jim, you, you, know, you can't spend money. Or, sorry, you can't spend gold. I say, why would I want to? If I've got paper money, I'd rather spend the paper money and keep the gold. But the time may come 
when the people have lost confidence in the paper money. And then that's when, yeah, can you eat gold? No, but you can buy food. Uh, can you drink gold? No, but you can buy water. Uh, can you live in a gold tent? No, but you can hire contractors to build a house. In other words, it's money that can be converted into all the things you need. We're going to run out of time before we run out of questions and topic, uh, Jim, but I wanted to ask about cryptocurrency. You mentioned it. I've heard a lot about it. I don't know how it works. A lot of people are confused about it. Is this the future? It'll be part of the future, and it's uh, actually a big topic here. Uh, I mentioned I'm at the uh, at Bretton Woods uh, for a, 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 a private international monetary conference, but crypto is a big part of the conversation. So the first thing I say about crypto, there's no such thing as a cryptocurrency. There are about 5,000 different cryptocurrencies and more coming on stream all the time, and they're all different. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is the best known. Bitcoin has all kinds of flaws. I wouldn't touch Bitcoin with a 10-foot pole. It's non-sustainable. It's non-scalable. Uh, it's got a lousy governance structure. It has a lot of problems. But you can't uh, paint with a broad brush. You, you go currency by currency, read the white papers, look at the governance, who determines if there can be more of them, if you can, in effect, create more or not. What, what's the use case? What are, the, what are you going to use them for? Bitcoin is a casino. If I want to, you know, people, I, I know people have made millions of dollars in Bitcoin. They bought them at a, uh, you know, a dollar a piece and sold them at $19,000 and actually paid their taxes and, you know, walked away with, uh, you know, $20 million or $15 million on the, on the coins they bought. But every penny they made came out of somebody else's pocket. There's some, you know, garage operator in Korea who hocked his inventory to buy Bitcoin at $16,000 and, and lost all his money or almost all his money. So it's just, it's just a big uh, casino. It's used for criminals. It doesn't have any use case, as we say. However, there are other cryptocurrencies that do. One that, that I'm focused on is we've talked about, you know, the collapse of the international monetary system or the collapse of confidence in the dollar. And you can see those things coming, but then you have to say, well, what will replace it? Uh, what, what, you know, there's always going to be some kind of monetary system. And as much as I'm a fan of, uh, of having gold to preserve wealth, I don't think we'll be walking around with, uh, you know, purses of gold coins going around the world. Uh, but you could have a gold standard of some kind. So one of the chapters of my book, I call it the Mar-a-Lago Accord, obviously, um, pointing in the direction of Trump's uh, resort, uh, President Trump's resort, Mar-a-Lago. But he could uh, convene, or with others, you know, maybe President Xi of China or others, convene an international monetary conference, not unlike what happened here at Bretton Woods in 1944. And everybody would sit down at the table. When I say everybody, you're talking about the the 10 or 15 largest economies and the people who control most of the gold in the world. So it's, you know, the U.S., Russia, China, uh, France, Italy, uh, Germany, a few other countries, <coughs> pardon me, and uh, Japan, and just work out new rules of the game. And, and by the way, that expression, rules of the game, it's been around for over 100 years. It's how uh, international monetary experts refer to the system that works. Now, everybody, you know, the U.S. loves, uh, you know, the king dollar or so. Right now, the dollar is 60% of global reserves, 80% of global payments, 100% of the energy market. They're all denominated in dollars. And, you know, if you go into intensive care and turn somebody's oxygen off, they're going to die. And that's a predictable result. Well, there's a dollar payment system. And if I kick you out of the dollar payment system, your economy is going to die because that's like cutting off the oxygen. And we use that, uh, that, we use the dollar and we use our control of the payment system to fight financial wars. We're doing it to Iran right now. We're doing it to North Korea and others. Um, but what's happening, it's like, you know, the schoolyard bully you know, beats up a kid and the next day beats up another kid and so on. But one day the bully shows up, and all the kids have formed a gang, and they beat up the bully. And the U.S., by kind of throwing its weight around, is inviting a response, some alternative methods. So you've got two things going on. You have the opportunity for a convening power, and I would start with the United States, but include others, to sit down and work out a system that makes sense. And maybe it's, you know, the IMF has a kind of world money, uh, believe it or not, it's called the special drawing right or SDR. It's a geeky name, but it is a kind of world money. And you could have an SDR backed by gold and uh, with you know some rules of the game, different price of gold, that could go forward. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, you could digitize it, so you could have um, a blockchain with a cryptocurrency version of the SDR backed by gold, and then everyone could tie their currency to that. Uh, and then you'd get away from currency wars. You wouldn't have these crazy exchange rate movements. 
Uh, it would look a little bit more like the 1880s or 1890s, but with a kind of digital gold anchor instead of you know moving the physical gold around. Um, the other alternative is you don't do anything, and then things just get worse along the lines I'm describing, and you have this collapse, and then you have to do everything on an ad hoc basis in, in the middle of a crisis, and that's when you make bad decisions and rush decisions. So the question is, are you going to have a, a, a sit-down, a convening power sit-down that makes sense, or are you going to have a catastrophe and a crisis where you have to do everything on the fly? I would certainly recommend the former, but I actually expect the latter. Uh, and then there are certain there are countries out there led by Russia and China, it's not a mystery, uh, and they've been piling up the gold. I mean, Russia has tripled its gold reserves since 2009. China has tripled its gold reserves since 2009. And I asked Larry Summers last night, Larry, at dinner, Larry Summers, the you know, former Secretary of the Treasury, I said, why are they doing it? I mean, I know what they're doing, but I just I wanted to get his view. And, you know, he talked about diversification, which makes sense. And he said maybe they think the price is going to go up, and they go, I'm on board with that. But the real reason is they're getting, they're doing two things. They know the U.S. is going to have to inflate the currency. So they're preparing to hedge the inflation. They have a lot of dollars, and those dollars are going to be worth less with inflation, but the gold will be worth more. So the gold will hedge the dollar exposure, number one. Number two, that gold could form the foundation of an alternative monetary system, an alternative to the dollar, so they can get out from under financial warfare and all these sanctions that we're throwing on people. So there's a lot going on in the system. It could be forward-leaning and, and kind of intelligent and rational, but it could be chaotic or it could be all-out financial war, and I, I think uh, we're probably going to see something a little more on the dangerous side. So... If this chaos that we're talking about happened tomorrow, what should we have done a week ago or a month ago to prepare? Well, J.V., that's exactly the right way to ask the question because um, I've run into people all the time. You know, they've, they've read, read my books or heard me give a presentation. They walk up and say, Jim, I, you know, I hear you. I read your book. I agree with everything you say. Call me at 3 o'clock the day before, <laughs> and I'll sell my stocks and you know go get right. some gold or something like that. And I say two things. Number one, I'm not going to know the day before. I can tell you what's coming, but I'm not going to know the day before. I, I just see the trends. And if I did know the day before, I'd probably be, be a little busy that day. But, but the point is, if you actually wait for the crisis, you're not going to be able to do the things you need to do to protect yourself. You'll call some gold dealer. They're not going to return your call if they don't know you, if you're not a customer. And even if you are... They'll be back ordered. The mint will be back ordered. Gold will be going up, you know, $100 an ounce per day. And you're going to see it, see the price ticker, but you're not going to be able to get any. So get some now. So what I recommend is um, a 10% allocation to gold and include some silver. You know, you should have a what's called a monster box of silver. It's 500 one-ounce silver coins, pure silver, from the U.S. Mint. Uh, so it's the highest quality stuff. It costs about... Um, $9,000 at, at current prices for the 501 ounce coins. Have it next to your battery and your flashlights. And, you know, you know when a hurricane's coming, you get plywood to protect the windows and water and batteries and flashlights. That's all good stuff. Have a monster box of silver because, you know, when the power's out, when the power grid's down, uh, guess what? The ATM machines don't work. The gas pumps don't work. Credit cards, debit cards don't work. And you say, well, if it's a day, it's, it's an inconvenient. But what if a day turned into a week or two weeks? Um, you're going to see riots. You're going to see vigilantes. You're going to see looting. Uh, but if you have silver, you'll be able to get some groceries uh, you know, to feed your family. So that's a good thing to have, too. But in terms of portfolios, that would just be 10%. I recommend a lot of cash and about 30%. Let's say people are surprised to hear me say that. They go, hey, Jim, you're, you're the guy talking about the decline of the currency. Why would you have cash? Well, you might not have it forever, but you, you should have it for now because uh, when uh, stocks crash, you know, 70 80%, um, you know, people are going to be selling stocks trying to get cash. But if you're the one who has cash, you can go shopping for bargains. You don't have to sell anything. You don't have to panic. You can take a deep breath. And you know, go out and maybe pick up some bargains in uh, in the wreckage, and then um, you know, deflation is uh, is a problem. It'd be one thing if I said, look, there's definitely going to be inflation. I could tell you exactly what to do. That would be easy. If I said there's definitely going to be deflation, I could tell you exactly what to do. But what if you're in a world, and we are in a world where either one of those is a possibility, and that's that is the world we live in. 
Uh, I could give you both scenarios. So you need protection against both. So gold, silver, fine art, land, natural resources, that's your protection against inflation. Your protection against deflation would be something like U.S. Treasury notes, you know, short-term maturities, two years, five years, so there's good liquidity. They will, essentially, if interest rates go down and the value of the dollar goes up, they're actually going to be worth more. Uh, and then in between cash reduces the volatility, and you can be the, the guy who goes out and shops for uh, bargains in the wreckage. So that's my uh, kind of all-weather or robust uh, portfolio. You mentioned cash. Should it be cash in the mattress? Should it be in a jar buried in the backyard? Where should the cash be? Uh, so, uh, I'll say some of both. Uh, have some physical cash, you know, keep it in a safe place. By the way, people are surprised at how difficult it is to get cash. Let's say you have $50,000 in the bank or $20,000 in the bank. Go down to the bank and ask them for you know $3,000 in cash and $100 bills. They might tell you to come back tomorrow. They might say we don't have any or you have to call for an appointment. I always remind people, I said, when you put money in the bank, it's not your money anymore. It's the bank's money, and they'll give it to you if they feel like it. Uh, you know, you got limits on what you can take out of an ATM. I mean, it, the cash is harder to get than you think. So, but have some because of what I described. You know, again, the power is out, power grids down, hurricane came through, there's been a cyber attack on the infrastructure. A lot of things can go wrong, and the ATMs don't work. So, having some cash at hand, you know, keep it right next to your silver is a good idea. But beyond that, you know, keep it in the bank, uh, and, uh, you know, always less than $250,000, so you have the insurance. So if you have half a million, you know, spread it around among two or three banks, so each deposit is separately insured. But that's your, um, again, that's your panic money. Uh, that's, that's money you can use to, uh, uh, it's not going to go down. If the stock market crashes, your cash is still going to be worth cash, and you can uh, pick up some bargains. But I would have some of it in physical form just because uh, uh, in a real bet scenario, you're not going to be able to get it. There are people listening to the program, and it's a real reality, not just uh, here in this country but around the world, that live paycheck to paycheck, probably don't own a home but rent, um, and don't have those kind of assets to protect. What should they be thinking? Uh, they should be watching the economy, uh, thinking about their job. Um, you know, save a little if you can. But believe me, I've I've been there. I know uh, I know it's hard. You're just trying to pay the rent and feed your family and put food on the table, and you don't have a lot for savings. But uh, uh, you know, you your vulnerability uh, is is losing your job. But that that's really your lifeline. So uh, you know, kind of be attentive to that. The best cure for everything is uh, one of the best cures is uh, is education. You know, education just kind of goes in your brain. It's kind of what you, you carry around with you. People can't take it away. And no matter what's happening to the financial system or the economy, if you've managed to get a good education or some training or professional skills, that's a valuable asset. So, you know, what's between your ears? Uh, don't, uh, don't underestimate the value of that. Uh, so many more questions, but uh, we're, we've only got a couple minutes left. Um, I know you don't have the crystal ball, but if you had to make some sort of a guess, a guess, maybe a range, uh, how far ahead of us might we see something like this? Well, I definitely don't use a crystal ball, but I do use um, what I call predictive analytics. It's actually science, and I learned a lot of this working uh, at the CIA after 9-11. There were a lot of intelligence community techniques that I learned that I've been able to take and apply to financial markets. So actually... Uh, had some pretty good success at, at predicting these kinds of things. But so there are two scenarios. One is something that comes out of the blue. It's triggered by, you know, a natural disaster, a war, you know, nothing good, nothing that we want to see happen. But these things do happen. They happen more frequently than people realize. Um, and uh, the market meltdown starts almost overnight. Well, in that scenario, again, if you have the portfolio I described, you'll be just fine. If you don't, if, if, if that's not within your means, uh, well, you're not losing anything. You know, the people with the stocks are the ones losing money. You you wouldn't be losing anything. You just got to watch for your job. But there's another scenario that maybe is more dangerous and more insidious, which is just the slow grind down. It's not the um, you know the the eighty percent market drop in a couple of weeks or you know which does happen, but um, it's just an economy that underperforms. Uh, the debt gets worse, growth gets slower, deflation kicks in, the central bank can't do anything about it. 
Uh, and then they try and try, and then suddenly you get a burst of inflation out of nowhere. And that is what happened in the late 1970s. Uh, that's where, again, the gold uh, and silver, if you have some, maybe it doesn't go up a lot, shouldn't go down a lot. But if you have it, there's your inflation hedge. So if that inflation comes out of nowhere, uh, you'll be in good shape. So the book has a lot more of this information, and we've just kind of scratched the surface here. Uh, you mentioned it before, but where can people get a hold of that book and your other work? Uh, they can get it at any, uh, any bookstore. The bookstore should have it. It's in stock. If not, please ask, and they'll get it for you in a day. Or if you want to go online, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. There's another one called Powell's. Uh, very big website. So, uh, yeah, they're all good. Uh, uh, the book's out, and they're all good venues. It's sell- happy to say uh, it's selling very well. We're, uh, we're ranked number one by Amazon in uh, money investing, digital currencies, wealth management. So uh, it's, a, it's a bestseller in all those categories, and I hope people uh, get it and, and enjoy it. That's great. Congratulations on the success. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for being here. It's been a fascinating discussion. It went way too fast. Thank you, JB. Bit of a departure from what we normally talk about on the program, but you know, financial um, chaos, as uh, our guest uh, James Rickards put it, uh, is not foreign. And in fact, uh, in 2008, we were pretty close to uh, a, a point that we couldn't recover from. And you know, um, Orion, who hey, by the way, welcome. Um, I know I know that uh, that you had an obligation earlier, but thanks for coming in. Yeah. Um, you have a little bit of an understanding of this Bitcoin stuff. I, I really don't, and I think it's probably something that everybody should get some understanding because it's, mm-hmm. whether it's Bitcoin or something else, it seems as though a cashless society in some form or another, and then this uh, blockchain stuff, it, it's going to be happening, whether you, whether you want, accept it or not. Yeah, the blockchain technology is a great innovation. Um, you know, I don't think Bitcoin has implemented it the best, uh, but it's it certainly introduced it, so we can thank it for that. But you know what happens when the dirty bomb hits and takes out your, your yeah. all your currency? I mean, that's when you want your monster box, right? The monster box, yeah, the nine thousand dollar box of silver. Um, but I still have an, I still have trouble understanding. Um, you know, Jim mentioned that you know it's all about confidence, and, and confidence in gold and silver will remain when confidence confidence in currency disappears. But I ultimately think if it's social chaos and people mm-hmm. are just trying to feed themselves, mm-hmm. you know, you may not take a gold coin for an ear of coin or ear of corn. You may you may you know say, well, I'll give you this ear of corn if you give me this gallon of milk or whatever sure. you know whatever it happens or, or to labor. be. Or labor, or a place to stay, whatever. You know, when you get down to the to the nitty gritty of survival, um, sure. I don't know that gold and silver still has its value. But again, it's it's above my pay grade. All right, that's going to do it for tonight. Tomorrow night we've got Tom Carey and Don Schmidt joining us. UFO secrets inside Wright Patterson Air Force Base is what we'll be talking about right here on Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.